Welcome to the Open Book Podcast. Morning, Marjorie. Hi, Claire. How are you? I'm good, thanks. Yeah, just kind of getting organised for the kids getting back to school. I know, it's a funny old time, isn't it? But it's no different in that way from other years. They're like trying to get everybody organised at the same time as enjoying things in Edinburgh around the festivals. I don't know if you find that strange, but I find it a massive challenge to have two heads on at once this time of year. Yeah, and my biggest challenge is getting the teenagers out of bed at a normal time again after having had a summer of, you know, basically getting up when they wake. Yeah, well, I don't know about you. Forget the kids getting up. Talk about, how about me getting up? I mean, I have to get my head back in getting up. I mean, I'm a morning person anyway, but usually so bleary-eyed. So the idea of now having to get everybody else up too is a massive challenge. I think I need to set my alarm even earlier to give myself a half an hour of quiet before the mayhem starts. The thing I love, though, about this time of year is that the kids are back at school before the book festival finishes. So... I do get those days where I can indulge myself and just enjoy things that I want to listen to for a while. It feels like a bit of a timeline of our friendship. I don't know if you feel this, but when we first knew each other and we were friends, what was it, 15 years ago now, we had babies, so we didn't have that. You know, we would sneak out for the odd evening event or take them to the book bug stuff during the day. And then, you know, as the, the youngest ones got into nursery, when they went back to nursery at the end of the festival, we got like a quick morning. We could dash down and get a quick morning event and come out again and get back in time. And then... Then, you know, in the, in the last few years, there's that kind of celebratory moment where the flip comes from being so kid-laden at the beginning of the festival to time for ourselves. And someday, Claire, we will get to that thing that we always dream of, which is spending the whole day in Charlotte Square with a glass of wine in the middle and not worrying about what to get home. Sad and happy as that will make us because the kids will be gone, but we'll be just watching event after event, enjoying, yeah, laughing probably. So today we're looking at another of our commissioned writers' work. This one is by Beth Godfrey, who is also an open book lead reader. So lovely to have some of Beth's writing to share with you this morning. This piece is called The Bench. The tree had grown and the grass hadn't been cut in a while. They used to be quite regular with that. But the view was the same familiar one and the night's gentle breeze had no chill to tense Kara's lower back. Her mother's bench looked out over the city, tucked neatly behind a gorse bush so it was easy to miss. They'd come up here often as a family for cocoa and snowball fights, or sandwich suppers on long spring evenings. Mum would smile, bathed in that low evening light, and the shadows would find her laughter lines. She'd play and cackle, pulling harmless pranks with the boys until they were the ones telling her to behave. Kara remembered being embarrassed at how carefree Mum had been, and only had begun to realise in recent years what a conscious effort that must have been. A single mum of three managing to make it all a game through sheer force of will. She wished they could talk now, woman to woman, that she could shake her and tell her to stop trying so hard and just be real. Bakara struggled to form specific thoughts to direct at her mother after the last time when I don't forgive you was uttered into the ether. And in truth, that was still the case. She was stuck, still angry and bereft, with no idea how to find her way back. She thought being here on mum's bench would help. But numb, she trolled through memories and found none able to wrap around her firm enough 
so she could lean in and let go. She missed her, and she knew her own hard-heartedness would be a disappointment. She'd never felt like her mother's daughter, and it was all too late. She finally had news she wanted to share, questions she wanted to ask, and they just made the absence of her mum all the more total. Even here, on the hill, in the back garden they never had, sight of so many happy moments, nothing offered comfort. She was met with the city churning indifferently and a hillside that had forgotten her. It would be the perfect time to have a cry. She smiled tensely and let her thoughts steal her feelings away. The sound of fabric wrestling with gorse led to a woman pushing through a gap in the bushes and abruptly stopping on seeing Kara. The woman was armed with her backpack and unkempt from her exercise. Young yet weathered, she looked like one of those wholesome outdoor types who had never grasped how to be feminine, but could be pretty if she tried. But something forceful about her put Kara on edge. I've never seen anyone here before, grunted the hoarse voice. Kara acknowledged her, but didn't reply. Warmth was such a costly effort. Rather than accepting that the area was taken, the woman lingered with a quiet aggression, crowding the clearing with a clear intent to make Kara uncomfortable enough to move on. Kara stiffened, and staring straight ahead, forced her arm to stretch out over the back of the bench. She knew the bench was a public space, that they didn't own the view, but her mother's name was on it. They had paid for it and worn it in, and this felt akin to trespassing. But the intruder didn't go. She stood off to the side, looking into the distance. Then she dropped her backpack and sat, picking at the grass. Picking a silent fight, she knew she'd win. We get a lot about Kara in that very first couple of paragraphs, don't we? Lots of answers, but lots of questions as well. I wonder whether the mum is alive. Do you think she's alive? I had thought not, but there is a possibility they could just be estranged. The mother's name on the bench is what made me think she wasn't, but I'm not sure, actually. Do we know her names in the bench? I wondered if it was just the bench that they sat on when they were up there. But it says at the end her mother's name was on it. I assume that was like a plaque. Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. They had paid for it. No, I think you're right. Yeah, I, I had wondered if it was just the bench that her mother had always sat on and therefore she felt an ownership of it. But yeah, no, I think you're right. I think it's a bench with one of those memorial plaques. She's obviously wrestling with her relationship with her mother, whether she's still here or not. Yeah, and that I don't forgive you is really strong, isn't it? And who's not forgiving who? I had read it as Kara not forgiving her mother, but it's not clear. No, although, you know, the, the fact that she's still stuck and still angry and bereft, you know, that could be if she wasn't being forgiven. And now, but she does feel like she's now got questions that she wants to ask and it's too late. So it makes me feel like the mum's not around. And it feels like as well that this place they are, which in my mind's eye is Arthur's seat, you know, just the gorse and the hill, the, the feel of it 
to me is very much Arthur's Seat. And it does feel that that's become such a special place for Cara, almost like a refuge or place that she can go when she needs to. Yeah, it does. And it feels like it's a place, if her mom's not around anymore, it feels like she's still trying to have a conversation with her mom in that same spot and failing in the same way that she did when she was there. You know, it feels like she's still trying to let go whatever she's angry about. And because suddenly she's got news to share, questions she wants to ask. And, you know, and that could be anything. It could be a relationship. It could be a pregnancy is what popped into my head. It's the kind of first moment, I think, as a woman that you really have. But holy moly, I know nothing about this. It's really hard to learn it from a book, you know. And the physiology of your mum's side of the family matters in terms of how you carry a child. In our case, I guess, probably the various ailments or things that you're at risk for, whatever. Really, It really matters at that point to sort of hear from your mum what might be coming. I can imagine if there's a kind of estrangement, that's the moment where you you might need your mum back. So that's what popped into my head, but that's probably just me as a mum of four. It could be lots of things, couldn't it? I mean, even new job, moving house, just that sense of wanting to share and not being able to, you know, really comes through in, in this section. Looking back at the first bit, you know, that idea that now as a woman, she wants to talk to her young mum to tell her to try stop trying so hard and just be real. So it feels like, you know, this lovely image of messing around with the boys and cackling and stuff. Although I had thought that was a gorgeous image because I'm forever messing about with my kids and behaving in a silly way, I would say. She didn't appreciate that, but also she feels like it wasn't real in some way, which is sad, I think. And I guess that's something maybe you wouldn't necessarily realize. Maybe her discomfort was about feeling that it wasn't real rather than feeling that her mum was being embarrassing. I think we do, I don't know about you, but I think we do recognize the struggles that our parents had when we get older. Even before I had children, I kind of had much more of a sense as I got older what my parents would have been dealing with. Yeah, and I think that comes when your life starts to align more with what your parents did. But I want to talk about the intrusion of the second person. The way it's been written, you get a real sense of discomfort, I think, from when this person appears. The anticipation of rustling of the fabric on gorse, which I so recognised how many times I've sort of scrambled through bushes and whatever I've been wearing has got caught on gorse and you've had to back out and twist and then go back in. But you're anticipating, you've no idea who it is, but very quickly, you know, your sense is, "Uh oh, this is not going to go well. No, and actually, for me, it shows me a side of Kara that I don't like. There's one line in there that tells me a lot about Kara, which is that she could be pretty if she tried. For me, the kind of woman who makes that kind of judgment says a lot about Kara. It's not particularly positive, but it's that she's quick to make a judgment about a woman, you know, because presumably she is pretty. It's just not the pretty that Kara appreciates. So we suddenly have a different image of Kara, which is that she's someone who does try and recognizes other women that try, rather than just recognizing, you know, that this is some, the way that the, this woman wants to be. But also she's not letting go. She's not for it. So it feels like there's a standoff about to happen. And that comment warmth was such a costly effort, I think, tells us a lot about Kara too, in terms of what her natural state would be. In some ways, being warm is much less of an effort than being harsh or mean or confrontational. Yeah, I certainly find it so. But then I guess that tells us a bit about maybe how she would have responded to her mum as well. But I mean, we don't know why she's angry with her mum. If we assume that the mum's not around anymore, the idea that you would carry anger tells us a lot about her unless it was a really terrible problem. I think in my head, that's a big thing to carry anger into death. I think I would carry guilt at feeling angry rather than the anger itself. Yeah, I feel like Kara is a harder person than I have initially thought. I started out feeling empathetic towards her, but now I feel quite hard. And she's not thinking, well, if this bent is in a weird place, completely hidden, then maybe they, maybe this woman needs it too. Anyway, shall we read on and see what's coming? Sure, yeah. 
Feeling relieved that the uptight woman on the bench had finally left, the young woman flung her backpack on the seat to claim her prize. The lady had no doubt been rich, judging by her air of entitlement and stiff separation from everything around her. I'm tired of people like that, always getting what they want, thought the young woman. She knew she had made the lady uncomfortable and half enjoyed doing so. She was accustomed to people responding uneasily to her, being met with guarded stares or worse, invasive acts of kindness. People barely veiled just how deeply they underestimated her in the way they spoke down to her, assumptions parading across their faces. And when others have so firmly decided who or what you are, the line of least resistance is just to play along. It was so rare to just talk these days, human to human, not about herself, but ideas. She remembered her teenage years and the passionate debate she'd get into, outmaneuvering her friends with her twisting logic. She'd always had a precision with her words and a burning self-assurance that had got her into trouble. These days, the sound of her voice shocked her, partly because she spoke so rarely, but also because it sounded old and tired. The four walls of the flat she'd recently started living in had been creeping in around her, and she wasn't sure about it, no matter how many seals of approval it had garnered. She'd been bought housewarming gifts that seemed so superfluous to her, garish decorations that increased the claustrophobia. She didn't feel herself, didn't feel capable in that static air or encroaching quiet. Over the years she'd moved about, but this was her favourite spot. She liked the walk, the solitude, the hidden in plain sightness of the bench. It was far enough to get away, secret enough to feel safe, but close enough if there was trouble. Not that she sought much help these days. She'd mastered simple self-sufficiency. Knowing not needing people wasn't necessarily a strength. She read the placard on the bench like a nightly prayer. In remembrance of Marianne, who lived fully and loved fiercely, from her children, who will miss her always. And imagined her namesake, willing her to send some of her magic from beyond the grave. She wondered what Marianne's kids were like, how much it hurt when she died, stuffing down her own thoughts from the past and imagining what her life would have been like if she'd had Marianne as a mum. She polished the sign with the hem of her jumper, kissed her thumb and pressed it into her own name, studying her dirty fingernails with a mixture of disgust and acceptance. She whispered the words again, claiming them as her own, as her future, if she was lucky. Then she unrolled her sleeping bag. So we're getting the other side of the story now. Yeah, and the, f- the first thing that sort of sprung into my mind about that was that old adage, you know, you never know someone's story until you've walked a mile in their shoes. Often cr- people are criticised for being quick to judge or quick to pass comment on someone without actually knowing much about them. And that obviously works both ways in the story for, for both the characters in it. 
you know, the idea that the, that the young Kara is rich and the way her, her she assumes it's an air of entitlement when all she felt entitled to was sitting on that bench trying to reconnect with her mum. And that second part gave me the impression that Kara was older than I'd thought she was. And that I recognise that kind of fierceness of I'm tired of people like that always getting what they want. I definitely, I mean, I probably didn't think like that when I was younger, but I definitely had a feeling like those people, you know, I had much more of a sense of people who weren't like me being really separate in some way, you know, whereas I think as I've grown older and certainly because of the work we do with Open Book, I recognise much more now that everybody has a story, you know, and no matter what you think you might be able to gather from someone, you know, there's always something, you know, you just can't make any judgments based on what people look like or where they live or anything else. Everybody's got stories that we can't see from the outside. But as a young woman, I didn't see that at all. So I, I recognize that kind of sentiment of, oh, I'm tired of people like that. And also her sense of acceptance, but annoyance at being put in that box herself, yet she's doing the very thing that she reels against. Well, and it sounds like she's a person who's not settling. You know, she sounds like a feisty young woman, you know, that kind of burning self-assurance. But also it feels like a real chance missed, you know. I feel sad in some ways about that opportunity missed because she's wondering who Marianne was and what her children were like. And, you know, I feel like in some ways it's quite a sad story because it feels like it's that kind of close encounter that doesn't succeed, you know. And all the stories and movies and things we watch it works out in the end and here it doesn't feel like it will it feels like it's a it feels in some ways about us but all being in our bubbles or maybe it's an admonition to go and break through them it's that sliding doors moment isn't it if only they'd taken that second to acknowledge each other and have a conversation about why they both wanted to be in that slightly unusual space something bigger might have come from the encounter i recognize that idea of like imagining her namesake and wondering what her children's lives would be like and things. I don't know about you as a child, but whenever I got frustrated with my own family life, and I suspect most children feel this, I would imagine what it would be like to wake up in the somebody else's family, you know, presumably like the most popular girl in the school or... Or the one that always had Pepsi. Yeah, exactly. And a sweets drawer. We never had that. When I was really little, um, when we first arrived from Iran, there was a really popular girl in the class and, and she just seemed to have everything. You know, she had like all the whatever the equivalent of the gear was. It was probably Jordache jeans or whatever, you know, like had all the right posters on her walls and always had the best snacks. And, you know, she literally had it made. And for years, I remember kind of thinking, gosh, I wonder what it'd be like to be her, and, you know, have her parents who seem so glamorous, you know, and then, you know, it wasn't long before we got to high school, the poor girl's family life completely fell apart and it turned out it had been really difficult and the mum got really ill and it was horrendous for this young woman. And I remember, you know, by the time I was sort of two or three years out of that and properly into teenagerhood thinking how foolish I had been thinking, you know, imagining what life would have been like in that house. Because my family was like awkward, you know, and my we were sort of half Iranian and, you know, kids don't like that. They're embarrassed by that. They just want to fit in. They don't want to be different. I just wanted to be like the kind of cookie cutter American family but then kind of realizing that that actually isn't how that young woman's life was like you know that it had its own challenges and sadnesses and difficulties you know it was a real wake up I remember actually remembering I remember waking up thinking that thinking gosh what a fool I was to think that other people might have much more easy time of it than me so but she doesn't feel like she's come to that you know she still feels like she's imagining or almost wishing she was one of Marianne's kids the magic that she talks about being sent from beyond the grave must be the magic to live fully and love fiercely and to have children who will miss her. And that, for me, that kind of really enforced my sense of loneliness and solitude. 
in the Marianne who rolls out the sleeping bag. Yeah, I think it's still kind of making a caricature of other people's lives. And I feel like that there is that sense with young people or the my younger self too of, you know, you're in a box, you're this, you're that. And there is that idea that Marianne will have you know, been perfect. You know, she will have had this magical life and her children will have loved her without recognizing that your children can love you even though you fail. You know, that your children can love you even though they're angry with you from beyond the grave, you know, and the, or, you know, that you haven't been perfect. You did things badly. And along with that recognition still comes the kind of fierceness of love, which we see in Kara, which is actually much more what real life is like, isn't it? So this young woman seems like a very black and white stage, you know, I've got to be outside and I've got to, you know, this kind of hardness to her that isn't really reflective of what life is like an inability to recognize there's compromise in some ways, things aren't perfect. But maybe that's just age or maybe it's character, I don't know. There is that hardness you've just described, but then there, there is a sense of an inner or a, a vulnerability that's lurking not far below the surface. And when she whispers the words from the bench again and wishes for them to be about her, that I found that really touching and really almost the saddest part of it all. Or kissing your thumb and pressing it to your name feels very sad. Or it seems very little girlish for someone who's sort of fiercely self-assured. It's a nice contrast with Kara, I think. And I think what Beth does in this story is this gives us, as we talk about almost every week now, you know, most of the character, but we get to decide, you know, what they're like. And I think that's the magic of stories that work are the ones that you have to really engage as a reader and ask these questions and decide for yourself. Should we have a listen to the poem and see what we think of it? And, and what's great about these stories is that the authors have suggested the poems. And normally that's our job, really. But it's a real joy to try and figure out why the poems have been chosen. So this is a poem by Gabrielle O'Cara called Once Upon a Time. Once upon a time, son, they used to laugh with their hearts and laugh with their eyes. But now they only laugh with their teeth while their ice-block cold eyes search behind my shadow. There was a time, indeed, they used to shake hands with their hearts, but now that's gone, son. Now they shake hands without their hearts, while their left hands search my empty pockets. Feel at home, come again, they say, and when I come again and feel at home, once, twice, there will be no thrice, for then I find doors shut on me. So I have learned many things, son. I have learned to wear many faces like dresses. Home face, office face, street face, host face, cocktail face, with all their conforming smiles like a fixed portrait smile. And I have learned, too, to laugh with only my teeth and shake hands without my heart. I've also learned to say goodbye when I mean to say good riddance, to say glad to meet you without being glad, and to say it's been nice talking to you after being bored. But believe me, son, I want to be what I used to be when I was like you. I want to unlearn all these muting things. Most of all, I want to relearn how to laugh. For my laugh in the mirror shows only my teeth like a snake's bare fangs. So show me, son, how to laugh. Show me how I used to laugh and smile once upon a time when I was like you. 
I love the contrast of the young and the old in this poem. It feels like it's a perfect pair for this story. And the, the use of the once upon a time, I think, just it just creates so much space and time in the poem. You feel like you're moving back in time, but it's a very gentle start to what is a subject that is really quite sad in the way his life has changed and the way he's been forced to be something he's not. Well, for me, it's the flip of the story we've just read, because in the story, Kara feels like she's working, trying to find out how to come unstuck, trying to get to a point of forgiveness and giving people the more of the benefit of the doubt or understanding that they're doing the best they can or wanting to go back to tell her mother to stop trying so hard. A kind of understanding has come over her. Whereas Marianne is sort of young and things are still really black and white and people need to be a particular way in my head. She's a fierce, sort of feisty young woman making judgments about other people. And in this poem, it feels like the opposite. I feel like the older he's become, the less he's honest and the more negativity he sees in other people. And he wants to go back to the innocence of youth, you know, where he sees people as they are and isn't cynical. It's the cynicism, I think, that grows, isn't it, in this poem? I think it's the masking that is in such contrast to the story as well, the masking of your true emotions and what you really want. Because in that scene where we've got Cara and Marianne together, there's absolutely no hiding of what each of the two of them wants the other to do. There's no shuffling up the bench to let the other one sit down, even though you prefer to be there on your own. I think she even says warmth is too costly. And and there's an honesty about that, isn't there? There's an honesty about just expressing it as it is, whereas this feels quite dishonest. That all his responses to the people that he meets, laughing with only his teeth, the saying goodbye when he meant good riddance, glad to have met you when he's bored, that just feels just huge that he's been dishonest through a large part of his life in his interactions and responses to other people. Yeah, and I guess I feel a hardness in him because, you know, the reality is we all do that, right? There's nothing in that poem that isn't true about the way we live. But, you know, we do wear different faces in the sense that, you know, we're more relaxed at home or you'll have seen my office face plenty, which is just let's get on with this, let's get the work done or whatever. But there's not dishonesty in that. I think it's just the reality of life, you know, that people are, or of course, you know, you say, can't wait to see you again to someone who you really can't, you know, I might not say can't wait to see you. I might say it was great to see you, even though I don't mean it. Because, I, you know, there's a sort of setting people at ease and trying to be kind, but I don't feel as terribly dishonest. I might not say, oh, I can't wait to see you again if I, that's not true, but I might say nice to see you. And I think that's where the distinction lies. I wouldn't say glad to meet you to someone I wasn't glad to meet. I just wouldn't say it or I would say something else. I'm guessing you're being very generous to the poet because I don't think you would. I, I seldom think good riddance when I say goodbye. I might think few. The guests who've been staying with me for a week have gone home. I can put my feet up. It's the extremes, I think, in this poem that I feel un uncomfortable with and create the dishonesty. You know, if, if you really do aren't glad to meet someone, just don't say yeah, it. Yeah, that's true. Yeah, I think there's a hardness there. He feels like he's someone who's been hurt. And, and, and I think that's why that's important that the door is shutting on you. It comes quite early because then I feel like once doors shut on you, then you're prepared to be more hurt. And when you start looking for hurt, it's there. I think it's all about perspective, right? So when you start looking for things to be hurt or angry about, if you start being convinced that the world is unkind, you will absolutely not fail to find evidence for that. <laughs> or if you think, yes, people are all, are all dealing with their own stuff and maybe they're unkind, but actually there might be other reasons. It's not about, maybe not about me. Yes, I think that's the key, isn't it? It's that, that assumption that everything is about 
hymns. I remember yesterday reading a quote by Maeve Binchy about how to live your life, which was a kind of funny admonitions and things like learn to drive and learn to write and don't bother with letters, send postcards and things. But one of the funny, one of the things that was really true in it is don't worry about what other people think. They're not thinking about you. And I was thinking, oh, that's a really, it's true. You know, people have got their own stuff. You know, we all, we all carry our own stuff around. And this story is really true. We all carry this, like, if you could imagine like a bubble around people with all their stuff, all their history, whatever they're dealing with that we can't see, you know, and they're just, we're just bumping off each other. But in the poem, it feels like he's taking that personally. He thinks the, the whatever it is, is about him. The door shutting is about him. But it's probably not. It's probably just because they've got their own crap going on. And I think the story is a beautiful flashing out of that, that these two women are walking up with their bone bubble and they just touch, but they don't actually manage to break into one because they can't push through. Yeah, but I think if you imagine people like that, it's it's really true. And I remember yesterday reading that thinking, it's absolutely true. People aren't thinking about me. People are thinking about their own stuff. But as someone who's sensitive, it's hard not to take things personally, I think. I think what's interesting about this poem as well is that he towards the end of the poem he recognizes what's happened to him he recognizes the person he's become and he wants to sort of recapture the more light-hearted more honest more open version of himself that has got lost behind this shell of as he described it muting and, and I feel it's a little hopeful because he's asking his son to show him and yeah and he feels like if he, he didn't feel he, there was time for him to unlearn the muting then he wouldn't be asking. Yeah, so that's positive. Another uh, poet that I hadn't um, come across before, but I'm going to go and seek out some more of his writing. And that's, I think I've said before, but that's been a great joy for me of, of um, asking our Unbound writers to suggest their own poems has been that it's opened up a whole canon of work for me to get my teeth into. That's great. Lovely pick that. Thank you. I think that's just about us for today. It's been lovely being in your ears again. We have a couple more Unbound writings to share with you over the next few weeks and we're looking forward to that. But in the meantime, um, do let us know what you thought of Beth's story and the poem. You can find details of how to get in touch with us on our website, which is openbookreading.com. And we hope to be with you again soon. Bye.